Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. Let me ask us all the question this morning, what dominates your thought life? What do you think most about? It may be something that you love. It may be something that you fear. It's not always what we love. But what are you most concentrated on? What do you think about the most? The most? Maybe you think about the economy. Maybe you think about politics. Maybe you think about your career or maybe you think about your financial situation right now. Maybe you think about your health. Maybe you're concerned often with the person that you see in the mirror and what you look like and what others think of you. I know for our young people, this is an increasing challenge of what will other people think, even to the point that a young woman would take her life this week after she was humiliated and beaten before the watching world in her high school hallway in New Jersey. And for some reason, that, that young girl couldn't move on beyond that, feeling dejected, rejected, despised, scorned, shamed. What controls your thinking? Maybe relationships? Maybe your family, maybe your future. But then maybe it's the word of God and as that washes in through all of these important things that we think about. Maybe we're, our minds are set on scripture, on the gospel, upon the church family that we're a part of, but on the church that is the global church, the universal church that we are part of. Maybe you think often about those that are yet unreached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you dwell on that. You think about that. The question for us this morning is, will we focus on self or will we focus on Christ? Where is our focus? We need to have a right perspective if we're going to hold all of those things that I mentioned before in their proper perspective, in their right place. They're all important, but we need to have the right perspective and whatever controls our mind will have a direct influence and an impact on our behaviors. It'll have an impact on our health. It'll have an impact on our well-being. It'll have an impact on our temporary life and it will absolutely have an effect on eternity. What do we think about? What controls our minds? Now, we've got little ones, even... Little ones on the way. We have little ones recently born. born, And when we are born, we are given an instinct to survive. We're given an instinct to live. And so when that infant is hungry, you do not have to teach that child a lesson. Cry out for food. Cry out for your mom. They know it. It's an instinct given to survive. It's a will to live. And when they're tummy is hungry, they let everybody know and they don't care where you are, right? But quickly, that will to survive, that instinct to survive and not die, 
turns and it morphs, it changes into a desire to conquer, a desire to have the bigger cup, the newer, the prettier cup, plate, all of those little things. And you got the larger serving and you got to go first. We always had that joke, you can go first right after me whenever we'd see that manifesting. And suddenly, somehow the instinct to survive, it changes and it becomes not healthy and helpful, it becomes ugly and it becomes destructive and it becomes hurtful because we quickly try to advance our career above others. We want the better office. We want the better job. We want the higher pay. We deserve it. We work harder. They don't. And we begin to just step on people that get in our way. That's the course of human nature. That's the course of the world. So my question for us then, brothers and sisters, how are we different as a church? Maybe you work in an environment that I just described. What happens when that ever manifests in the church? My will, my way, my preferences. And if you don't honor those, pastor... I'll go find another church, the me church. Think about this. The gospel is what changes us, loved ones. The gospel is not an external change outside in. The gospel is a change that happens inside out. It starts deep down in where no one but God can see. And it begins to change our loves, our desires, our our change from me first to you go first. How can I serve you? It's where we were in the sermon last Sunday. The gospel, let's be clear, is not a self-help message. The gospel is not a way to improve or boost our self-esteem. The gospel is not a way to better our lives Just use the example of Jesus. He was a great teacher, and and some will say, just follow his teaching and your life will be better. Tell that to Paul when they chopped his head off. The gospel confronts us in our weaknesses, our sins, our depravity, our inability to rescue ourselves, And the gospel then brings us not the crushing reality, we can't measure up to God's perfect standards, but one has come and he lived the life you can never live and he died the death that you deserved to die. He bore the wrath of God in your place, in my place, on the cross, he was buried and he rose again the third day. And so the gospel brings to us, here's what, who you need, it's Jesus. What happens when a church is fixated on Jesus? How do you offend those people? How do you wrong those people? When do those people not forgive their brothers and sisters in Christ? When do they not work it out for the glory of God and the good of others? You see, the gospel is good news because it tells us of God's plan and provision for our salvation through Christ that he came not to get, but to give. He came not to get something from us. He came to lay down his life and give us life that never ends. And he's the greatest of all. 
So as we enter into our study today, the reality of what Jesus said in John 10.10, it contrasts, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Okay, you have these contrasts. You have our evening news, our daily updates through social media. Is that the prince of the power of this age of the air, Satan, who is on a leash, is doing everything he can to destroy young lives, to destroy older lives, to destroy the lives of the unborn, the preborn through abortion that our nation is halfway embracing with everything in them, praising what is evil and calling it good. That's the thief. But Jesus says, in strong, stark contrast, I came that they might have life and have it, how? Abundantly. Abundant life. That's what Paul is writing about to the church. I don't want you to fake it till you make it. I don't want you to just go through life. He's writing to them, I want you to know by experience this unbreakable joy that held him in the grace of God even when he was in prison. We want to ascend the mountain of the person and the work of Christ together. But first, loved ones, we have to go down. We have to go down with him into his humiliation. Next week, Lord willing, we'll go up with him to his exaltation. But this week, we have to go down. And this passage is like a V. It goes down, and then it comes up. We go down into his humiliation, and then we go with Paul in this amazing text of Scripture up into his exaltation. Now, most scholars believe that this section in Philippians 2 was a hymn used in the early church. It tells us about their worship. It tells us how they thought about the Lord Jesus Christ, about Jesus of Nazareth. And what Paul is doing, Stephen used just wonderfully the illustration last week of a conductor, and the conductor steps up and takes, you know, the the little instrument, gathers everybody's attention, and all eyes are on the conductor. Now, if you've ever been part of, how many of you were part of a marching band? Raise your hand. Marching band. And if you were ever part of multiple marching bands, have you ever seen that happen where maybe multiple schools come together and they fill the entire football field? And then they need to replicate the conductor. So they have a conductor that's the lead in the middle and then they'll put conductors out on the wings and the conductors that are to the left and the right, their eyes are on the lead conductor and their hand is matching his hand and it's the way a a hundred yard field filled with instruments are all in unison. It's quite amazing. This is what Paul is doing in this text. This is what he's showing to us. In verses one, two, three, and four, we saw his plea for unity. We see unity and diversity. He wants the believers there to perform a spiritual evaluation, consider all that we have been given in Christ, encouragement, comfort from love. All of this has been given. And then he wants us to understand the expectation. And we saw that Stephen led us through that last week in verses two through four. With this great gift comes an expectation from the apostle. And he wants us to embrace the privileges and responsibilities that come along with being a child of God. Now we see this pattern for humility. 
And we see this in verses five through eight. Paul writes to the church, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We'll stop there for this week. This is the word of the Lord. What do we see from this? What is Paul after, right? The perfect example of humility, and he sets this before the church, that we need this humility for our relationships. We need this humility for ministry. And so Paul is writing to the church, and he, he sets before them where their focus ought to be, where our focus ought to be. It's on the supreme example. Isn't it amazing that Paul didn't put himself forward as the supreme example? Isn't that instructive to us? Paul didn't say, and therefore I, he said, no, we need to together, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. The church must keep her eyes on Jesus. We're to have this mind among ourselves. This is a community effect that Paul is aiming for. It means we must hold Christ in the highest regard. We, didn't, we just sang that, didn't we? We give you the highest praise. Why? Because he's worthy of it all. And I'm not. You're not. But Jesus is. Because of who he is and for all that he has done. And Christianity, loved ones, is best displayed through humility. So what Paul is after here is he's after a community that is mindful of Christ, that whatever we're doing, we're thinking of Jesus. We're mindful of the Lord Jesus in every single thing we do. This is countercultural. This mindset, this attitude is not something that we deserve. It's not something that we earn. The interesting thing about humility is if you ever think you have humility, you don't. You know, the joke, I want you to pick up my book I've written on humility and how I obtain it. Don't buy that book ever. As soon as we think we have it, you know, a corner on the market, we can be sure that we do not. That's why Paul says, look at Jesus. We're united by the Spirit of God through the grace of God and through the work of Jesus Christ. So what we need to understand and what Paul is after is who is this Jesus? Who is this Christ, this Messiah. And so first he begins with the person of Jesus Christ. Who is he? As followers of Christ, we've been given the mind. We've been given the mindset. We've been given the attitude of Jesus Christ by the spirit of Christ. And so our eyes are fixed on him because that's what he has done in us. But who is this Jesus? You realize this is the subject. This was the starting place where in 2006, I didn't know a lot when I was called to serve here as a pastor, but I knew one thing. If we're gonna have any chance to succeed in anything eternally worthwhile, then we have to agree on who Jesus is. We have to see, and so that was the first series that we ever did in 2006, Who is Jesus Christ? 
Let's get that clear. He is the Lord. He is the highest one. He's worthy of our praise. And if we can all put our eyes on him, I knew this, then we'll be okay. We'll be all right. As soon as we take our eyes off Jesus, we're in trouble. We have our eyes fixed on Christ. He will take care of us. This is Christology. We live in a world that Jesus and you talk to different people and how they understand and if they get their information or they get their understanding of who Jesus is from movies. Oh, he's baby Jesus, right? And, and, it's, and it's mockery. It's not the highest praise. It's actually the highest form of disregard. It's mockery. From TV series, use the name Jesus, and it starts off and it seems like, well, that's pretty good. But then they start to twist and it starts to change and people's understanding because they saw it on a movie, Passion of the Christ, anything, and they start to blend truth with a movie producer's understanding and it all gets filtered in and you can't separate. Who is Jesus revealed in Scripture? You watch the game today or if you've been watching TV, there's commercials And they're using Jesus' name to advance an ideology. And so we have to have our guard up. We have to be careful just because someone knocks on your door and they hand you a pamphlet with a European blue-eyed, long-haired Jesus, which he was not European, some artist's rendition, but it has Jesus' name on it and they're so nice. Caution. Just because the song has Jesus' name in it or the actor winning an award or the athlete gives praise to Jesus, okay, but that isn't the end of the story. Let's let Scripture define to us and dictate to us who is this Jesus that is worthy of our praise and let that ring true because it is true. As we come to this Scripture Paul sets forth Jesus as we see him clearly as, first of all, he's sovereign. This is where Paul begins with the deity of Christ. He says, have this mind among yourselves, in verse 5, which is yours in, and here he uses the word Christ, Jesus, Messiah, who though he was in the form of God. The Nicene Creed was from the first council of Nicaea in 325. They were giving a response to someone named Arius, a man named Arius, and he was teaching in the church aberrant teaching. And he was saying that Jesus was not God. And so the church responded in that council saying we absolutely see that scriptures teach us Jesus is God. You say, well, why are we talking about something back in 325 AD? Because Jehovah's Witnesses follow that teaching. It's still around. So just because something is wrong doesn't mean it will run its course and run out. We have to be careful of what we believe and what we teach because error can hang around for a long time. 
and people can follow that. And so in the Nicene Creed, they responded with this, Jesus, very God of very God. Like, let's be clear on this. And they, they, they intended, they spelled that out, Jesus, very God of very God. And in and, and coming from this passage, this is very Christological here, that Jesus is Messiah. He's the greatest of all. He was the one promised. He was the one they were waiting for, this Messiah king of Israel. That's why Herod was nervous. What are you talking about? A king is born, a king of the Jews? He's actually king of everything, Herod. And he's not paranoid about anyone or anything. He's been born king, the son of David. This passage, Philippians 2, it's not a passage that Paul intended for theological, endless theological debates to happen over this. It's for practical application within the church. He's writing that there's an aim here, that if we have our minds set on Christ, there's going to be behavior changes, and it's going to be a good environment in that body of believers. We've been given the mind of Christ for a purpose, and it's not, have, not to have a puffed-up theological opinion, but practical loving kindness. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes when people learn more and learn more and learn more and put more and more degrees behind their name, they end up becoming more and more unkind and more harsh. Well, that shouldn't be the product of studying and fixing your eyes on Jesus. That's not why Paul was giving this. He wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the full title, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now listen, I preached this message, 1 Corinthians 1.10. I preached that message a while back. And let, let me say this. Preaching a message doesn't produce unity in a church. It sets forward the way that it should be, but the Spirit of God is the one that puts it all together in the hearts of believers, genuine believers, to where we agree on who Jesus is, we agree on the Word of God, and then our lives conform to the image and person of Christ. Frank Thielman says it this way. He says, Paul's primary concern then is social rather than big-brained, theological, you know, juggernauts. What did they say? I have no idea, but I'm sure it must be right and really good. I didn't understand a word of it. That's not why Paul is writing. Not cerebral. He wants the Philippians to adopt in their mutual relations, okay? Husbands and wives, you're listening. Parents with children, children with parents, are we listening? Siblings, church members. In our relationships, we adopt in their mutual relations the same attitude that characterized Jesus. Show me what that looks like in a marriage. Show me what that looks like in a family. Show me what that looks like in a church. And that church will be good for the community and world around it. Jesus is Lord, and what did this most glorious sovereign king do? John 13. Verse 12, when he had washed the disciples' feet, and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? And they all would have said, uh-uh, no. You call me, verse 13 says, teacher and Lord. And you are right, 
for so I am. I have all rights. You hear what he's saying? I have all authority. If I, verse 14 then, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant, you all, us, not greater than his master, Jesus, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, are you theological, amazing men? He doesn't say, great job, wonderful that you know these things. Where's the blessing? When you do it. It's wonderful to know it. But if we disobey what we know to do, we're held accountable to that. Jesus says, here's the blessing. You want to know the blessing of God in, in your life? You want to know the blessing of God in our families? Do we want to know the blessing of God in our church? Then let's do what he has commanded us to do. And we will experience the blessing that we cannot get for ourselves. He will pour it out upon us. What does this mean? What is he telling his, his disciples? Guys, I waived my rights. Waive your rights. I'm the greatest, I'm your teacher and Lord, and I waived all my rights and served you. I've said it before, so there's no task in a church ministry or in our home that is beneath us. I don't do that. Jesus did. Man. He is also the preexistent son of God. Jesus did not begin the night of his birth in Bethlehem. So language matters. Misunderstanding texts like this one have resulted in countless cults who deny the de deity and the eternality of Jesus Christ. What then does it mean that he was, Paul writes, in the form of God? You see that there in verse five? That he was in the form of of God. Hmm. Does that mean that he wasn't God, but he was just in the form of God? Now, the Greek word, and Paul had two options of two Greek words that he could have used here, and he chose the word morph, morphe. He was in the morphe of God. So is Paul saying here that Jesus was less than fully God? No. So the fundamental rule, if we're going to rightly understand our, our Bibles, is interpret the Bible with the Bible, okay? Scripture with Scripture. That is the fundamental rule. Jesus was, is, and will always be the second person of the triune God. His outward form changed, but his divinity did not. Jesus is the express image of the invisible God and his people cannot duplicate his ministry, but we sure can display his ministry. So when we follow his example, we're not duplicating what Jesus did. We're displaying the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Let's dive into this a little bit more. The two words, all right? Morphe, the other word was schema. Those are the two words that he could have used. Morphe is, in a, is the essential form which never alters. It never changes. Schema is the outward form which changes from time to time and from circumstances to circumstances. 
So for instance, and this is William Barclay, I'm borrowing from him to help explain this. For instance, the essential morphe of any human being is humanity and this never changes. You understand what he's saying? Morphe, but his schema is continually changing. Okay, so when you think about, and he began in his explanation with a baby, but you can actually begin before that baby is born in the womb, what is it? Okay, so we live in a culture that says, oh, it's just a fetus. It's a clump of cells. Really? The same people that protect eggs of eagles and protected species. But, but what is it? Well, it's human. It's a human being. Its location is different. Its level of dependence is different. But what is it? It's a human being before birth, upon conception. It is a human being. When it's born, what is it? A human being. When it's a toddler, what is it? A human being. When it's in middle school, high school, college, graduates, works, retires, approaches the end of what is that? A human being made in the image of God. What has changed entirely for all of those years? What we see in the mirror and what we can hold in our hands that turns holding our hands and then that one is helping us and taking care of us at the end of life. So the schema changes, but the morphe stays the same. And Paul used the word, his form is unchanging. Very precise. He writes to the Colossians 1.15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean he was the first one born. It means over all that are born, he's first. He's preeminent. He deserves the highest praise. He's worthy of it all. 2 Corinthians 4.4, in their case, so in, Paul is writing for, for people who have not yet come to faith in Christ, people who are living um, and they are king over their lives, they believe. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Why? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And who is Christ? Who is he? He is the image of God. Hebrews chapter 1. These verses, the introduction to a sermon, which is what the book of Hebrews is. And he writes, this is his introduction to a sermon long ago. And many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So that's Old Testament. Verse 1 is Old Testament. Verse 2, but in these last days, New Testament, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Okay, so it's all going to him. Through whom, through the Son, he also created the world. It all started with him. Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Verse 3, he is, Jesus is, the radiance of of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you know why we're here right now? It's because his word is holding everything together. After making purification for sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He is worthy of our highest praise. The first Adam, placed in the garden, made in the image of God, he was tempted and Eve was tempted. 
And they succumb to the temptation of, I want to be like God. God is holding out on me. This isn't fair. You ever heard that from a kid? You ever felt that as an adult? This isn't fair. If they only knew all that I was doing for this company, I would have had that promotion. Well, Adam was tempted and he failed miserably. He caved. And we're born under his headship. We're born under the curse of sin. And so Paul writes, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, thus, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. See the difference between the first Adam and the second Adam? Jesus, Adam was given life. Jesus is the one who gives life. There's a big difference there. The second Adam was God who added to himself the likeness of men. So Matthew's gospel focuses on this first point here that Paul's making. He is sovereign. He's the king. And he was tempted. The son of David was tempted. And he didn't cave in like David did. In the wilderness, he was tempted. Just skip the cross. Skip the suffering. You can just have it easy. Take the easy road. And Jesus did not succumb to temptation. He is sovereign, and what did he choose then to do with all of that power? He chose to become son, and we see this in verse 6. Here we see his humanity, that Jesus became flesh, that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, held onto, exploited for selfish gain. He's the son he gave all of his rights up for a season, but he's still God. Second person of the triune God. Jesus is equal with the Father, but he condescended down to us. That God in flesh came to our rescue. He came himself. He didn't send someone else. He came himself. He did not cease to be God. So Paul wrote Colossians 1.17, speaking of Jesus, and he is before all things, same thing we read in Hebrews, and in him all things hold together. He's the preeminent one. And this is where cults say, no, we'll see Jesus as a good teacher, an influential leader, but we will not fall down and worship him as God. Then you're wrong. And he is still patient with you to welcome you into the family that he is making. Jesus laid aside his rights on our behalf and the word became flesh. This is the theme of John's gospel. He leveraged, Jesus did his power and authority for our good and for his glory. And that's what's best for us. John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him, in Christ, in the word was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not over overcome it. That's what we celebrate at Christmas is the light has overcome the darkness. Irenaeus in 180 AD, 
he said it this way. He said, not one of the created and subject things shall ever be compared to the word of God by whom all things were made, who is our Lord Jesus Christ. That is powerful. What are you going to compare? Be careful when you're trying to teach the Trinity to kids. Because you can't compare it to ice and water. and That's ice and that's water. That's not Jesus. He created everything. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the point is we didn't die. We, didn't, we weren't consumed in his glory. His glory was veiled that the Son was born, the Son of God, God's gift. We also see the theme of Mark's gospel, and that is that Jesus, here Paul is saying, is servant. We see him as servant in verse 7. Here we see the humility of Jesus. We've seen his deity, his divinity. We've seen his humanity and son. And now we see that he came to serve. This is his humility. This is the gist of Paul's passage here. This is what he's aiming at. If this is our Lord, then how much do we resemble him, loved ones? He embraced the role of a servant. So it says in verse 7, Paul writes, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. He emptied himself. And this brings up much debate. And, and there's whole false religions out. See, he emptied himself. He divested himself of his deity when he became a man. He wasn't God any longer. No. No, he emptied himself. The, the word there is uh, kinu. Right? Kinosis is the doctrine. He emptied himself. What does this mean? The word actually means vain or caused to lose power. So then does this mean that Jesus ceased to be God, that he lost all of his power? No, that's not what we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus claimed to be equal with the Father. He laid his sight, he laid aside his rights for the good of humanity for the good of all who would repent and trust in him alone. So he resisted Satan's temptation in the wilderness and he concealed his glory. Think about the Christmas carol. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that men may no more may die. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. And people hear that and they shop and they shop and they have no idea that he, the greatest of all, set aside his glory, laid aside his rights, laid aside his privileges for you and for me. And then he took it back up again. No other human can do this. I read of a tragedy that occurred in an African village. A man was going down to the well to get water. And there, I, when I was with uh, the bandas in Africa, there's a few places that they've dug wells and filled them back in. And really, they're dangerous. If you remember the video, 
that Harrison did. He said, I'm down in the well here in ministry, but really somebody's holding that rope. And without partners in ministry, I'm by myself down there. And what happened in an African village is there was a man who went down into that well to bring up water and he fell and he broke his leg and they came and they told the chief, man's down in the bottom of the well, he's broken his leg. So the chief ran, he came, got to the well, there he is, he's all in his chiefly garments and headdress. And what did he do? He laid aside, he took off his headdress, he took off his robe, and he went down in the well himself. He put the man on his shoulders and came back up for the good of that man and for, honestly, the good of the whole, the whole village. Because that man dies in that well, we're not going to live. That's our water supply. We have to have water, and it can't have something that has passed in the water dying and decomposing. Did that man cease to be chief? No. He laid aside all of those privileges. I wear this. And instead, there's a need, and he laid it aside, and he went down, and he brought that man up. And that illustrates beautifully what Jesus did for us and what Paul is talking about here, that he laid aside his rights for us. And in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, Mark writes, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to, what's the word? Serve. Well, how much was he going to serve? and to give his life as a ransom for many. He paid the highest price. You might jot down right there Isaiah 53. Next Sunday, we will observe communion together. And let Isaiah 53, just read that this week and meditate on that, the suffering servant, the one they were waiting on, Many Jewish people today who reject Jesus as Messiah, they will skip over Isaiah end of 52 and chapter 53 because it's unmistakably pointing to Jesus of Nazareth. Matthew 23, 11, Jesus says, the greatest among you shall be your what? Sermon. You want to be great? Serve. The way up is down. That goes against everything in us. Don't tell me what to do. Jesus says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. And then we see what Luke's gospel is themed around, and that is Savior. Savior. The person of Jesus Christ. He is sovereign, he is son, he is servant, and he is savior. Here we see his victory, that Jesus was born to die. And Paul writes, being born, being found, being seen in the likeness of men. At the end of verse 7, that, that Jesus was born or he was found. This is his humanity. Even his brothers, they looked on him. They saw him as an ordinary man. They regarded him as a brother. When he was speaking and they didn't understand what he was saying, like, this guy's lost his mind. Our brother has lost his mind. Come on, mom. Jesus is out there and he has lost his mind. Let's go get him and let's rescue him. Jesus needs us to rescue him. Jesus, your mother and brothers are out here. Who are my mother and brothers? You want to know who my mother and brothers are? Those who hear and obey the word of God. Those are my mother. That's my mother and my brothers. But to his brothers, he's like, he's a brother. They wrestled, they did whatever brothers do. 
They didn't see him as a floating spirit in the family. No, he's our brother. It, it was normal. He was like them. And he was found in this. He, was, he grew up in Nazareth. And, and later when he's teaching, they're saying, where did he get all this authority from in teaching? What school did he go to? How is, who is this guy? We thought he, we knew this guy. Romans 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He came in the likeness of you and me, sinners. He wasn't a sinner, but he came and everyone would have looked at him and Isaiah 53 says you'll look at him and not be impressed by him. Okay, so he wasn't voted most handsome in his school, in his upbringing. He was normal, he was average. Nothing to be regarded as something special by his physique, by his appearance. Galatians 4.4, Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. At the right time, he was born. Jesus came to earth on a divine mission. For the Son of Man, Luke 19.10 says, came to seek and to save the lost. That's his mission. He came as Savior. That's the theme of Luke's gospel. In Mark's gospel, as servant, Jesus is always busy serving, serving, busy, preaching, serving. Luke's gospel, this is the Savior of the world. That's what he came to do. So someone wrote the song, what if God was one of us? Wouldn't that be amazing? Where were they? What have they missed? The most important, he actually did become one of us. I would argue that he was not a slob like one of us. He was sinless, a good steward. Everything his father entrusted to him. Loved ones, he was one of us. And he still bears the marks of the crucifixion in his body. He didn't leave that behind when he ascended. That's the important reality that all of that time when they were seeing Jesus resurrected and he appears and he disappears and he appears and he's gone and he appears and he's gone. But when he ascended, they watched him and he didn't just disappear. He was taken up. They watched him till they couldn't see him anymore. He was taken from their sight. He still bears humanity in his body, Revelation 5, 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, John writing says, I saw a lamb. He was standing as though it had been, what does he say? Who's he looking at? He's looking at Jesus, and he's still seeing the marks of crucifixion in his body. Now, think about this. Don't we try to hide all the blemishes? Oh, I'm aging. I've got to hide all the blemishes. And Jesus says, I want to show these off. This is radical. This is upside down. He bears those marks in his body. He didn't cover them up. He's not ashamed of them. This is grace. As though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He laid it aside. 
He didn't cease to be heir and creator of all things. It's all his. He came to share that with us. That's what Paul is impressing on the, on the Philippians. John Calvin says it this way. He laid aside his glory in the view of men, not by lessening it, but by concealing it. Peter, James, John, go with me. They went up to the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. And there when they woke up from their sleeping during the prayer meeting, and there they see Jesus unveiled and they see his, his glory. Peter pipes up, can we just stay here? Let's, this is the best men's camp out ever. <laughs> the father, shh, Peter, listen, listen to my son. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Listen to him. Stop talking. His glory was veiled. He is glorious, and he concealed that for our good and for his glory. So Paul wants the Philippian church, I want you to understand, who is this Jesus? And isn't that amazing that he just, in a, in those five, six, and seven, he just summed up the four Gospels? That in Matthew, we see him as sovereign, as the Messiah King. In John, we see him as son. And as in Mark, we see him as the servant. And in Luke, we see him as the Savior. And Paul is saying, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, church. And when you do, and as you do, the things of this earth, all that you once held dear, it will have its right place and perspective and you will realize I was treasuring things that will not last. I was investing my life in that which is not worthy. And there we find forgiveness and mercy and grace and he changes us. Well, let's also look then in verse eight at the passion of Jesus Christ. We consider his person, well, that will influence how we treat one another. That'll govern how I treat my wife and my family and the church family where I serve. But what about the passion of Jesus? What about the passion of Christ? Here Paul is going into detail, what did Jesus do? It's not just who he is, but consider what he's done. And in verse 8, he describes that Jesus sank himself into our flesh. That's the way Luther described the incarnation. And being found in human form, he says it again. He goes back to that again, that he stepped down from glory, that he wrapped himself in humanity, in flesh. His family, his neighbors, his disciples, his enemies, the holy angels, the fallen angels, the demons, they all witnessed his humanity. He had to be human. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness that Jesus, that he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, that's holy and fallen angels, proclaimed in, among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. This is the gospel. This is the message. This is what Paul is committing to Timothy. Let your life be about this one, Timothy. He sank himself into our flesh and he submitted himself to the uttermost. 
Paul says he humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He didn't go halfway. He didn't go a little ways. He went all the way. Think about this. Jesus was not humbled by someone greater than he, by someone stronger than he. He humbled himself. When Paul wrote that he came in as a servant, whoever takes up that, whoever sells them in to be a slave, that's the word. That's what Jesus did. John 10, 17. Jesus says, for this reason, the Father loves me. (coughs) I went down the wrong channel right there. (laughs) For this reason, the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life. Why? That I may take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. He humbled himself. He submitted himself to the uttermost. He wasn't humbled by someone greater than him, by someone stronger than him. You ever had that happen to you? Where you thought you were doing pretty good on the job or on the team and then somebody else showed up and you're like, ah, you go ahead. I've had that happen. Playing basketball in the summer in Missouri at the college gym, nobody was around. This old guy in my mind showed up. He was probably younger than I am now. He's shooting around, making comments. Wow, look at this three-point line. This is, yeah. Want to play? I was like, sure. I don't think I scored a point. The guy just schooled me. He took me to school, and I just failed royally. And then I, and I called him on it afterward. I said, three-point long way out here? He's like, oh, yeah, I, used to, I played ball, NCAA. I was like, uh-huh. I didn't, okay? Thanks a lot. He just, he just took me and just wiped me all over the floor. You know, there you go. Whatever I thought I had, he just showed me. Like, he humbled me. Absolutely. I haven't forgotten that lesson. But Jesus wasn't humbled by someone else. He humbled himself. He didn't go halfway. Satan tempted him. Opt out. Skip the suffering. I'm absolutely thankful he went to the uttermost. He went to the end. He went to the point, And he didn't give up on his weak and failing and miserable disciples. I mean, think about that. How many times, like, these guys, I don't think they're ever going to get it together. And he didn't quit on them. He didn't reject them. He didn't give them up. He didn't simply well, let's just patch up the differences and put up with the failures. He loved them, he confronted them, he taught them, and he submitted himself to the uttermost, and he suffered in our place on the cross. Paul says it wasn't just death. He didn't just go to a peaceful, quiet death, an execution by injection, a quiet... No, no, no. He suffered a death on a cross. 
Jews and Gentiles feared the cross. They despised the cross. It was the most cruel form of punishment and execution. It was invented by the Romans. It was a tactic that they would put fear into all of their enemies. Cross us, and this is what you have in store for you. Jews viewed the cross based on the Old Testament as a sign of rejection by God and man. But Jesus embraced the cross. So Christians embraced the cross. And we talk about the cross, we're talking about, it's a word that sums up his life, death, burial, resurrection. It's not just the stake. We're not that impressed with the stake. It's the cross that embodies the gospel. So the Nicene Creed, they responded to the Arius' teaching where he was making much of, no, no, Jesus never, he wasn't God. And this is what they responded with. I believe in one God, the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one, Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Consubstantial with the Father, through him uh, all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. This is Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul writes, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So you want to mock the cross? You want to dismiss the cross? To us, it's an emblem, yes, of shame, but it's an emblem of glory. So listen, loved ones, don't feel sorry for Jesus. Don't pity Jesus. He stands over you. He stands over me and he laid aside his rights to come take our place and suffer and die and rise and defeat death, hell, and the grave. So don't pity him because he'll never be humiliated again. He's at the right hand of the Father and he will come again. And so what does Paul say? 1 Corinthians 1.22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we say no. Pastor, let's come up with some more ideas to get people in the doors. Can you just tone that? Maybe shorten up the sermon, maybe change it up, maybe make it a little more politically. No, we preach Christ and him crucified. What was it 2,000 years ago? A man lived and, and, and died and whatever happened. And what does that have to do with me today? Everything. Absolutely everything. Well, I wasn't thinking that way. Then your thinking is wrong. My thinking is wrong. And it needs to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ because this is what the word of God says. To those who are the called Verse 24, both Jews and Greeks, this message is for everybody. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So everything that's popular in our culture or trendy in thoughts and philosophy all must be submitted to Jesus the King. And we will focus on the cross.
and we will consider the person and the work of Jesus, and we will then worship and emulate our Lord Jesus. God, help us. Help us to live for your glory and the good of all people around us. And what impact would that have in our marriages? And what impact would that have in our homes? And what impact would that have in our church? And what impact would that have in the world? That's a people that are radically different because they've laid aside their rights. And they're just simply saying, that's what we're supposed to do. He did that for me. You see how we're motivated then by love and not by guilt? I'm going to try harder. No. Let's put our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a, great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us and where are our eyes, loved ones? Fixed on Jesus looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Living in unity is a result of living in humility that is Christ-centered. This heavenly harmony, it will happen through us, not because a preacher admonished you, but because of the work of God is resonating in you. The spirit of God is, will guide and change us. I love David Crowder has a song. The song is called My Victory. The cross meant to kill is my victory. The cross meant to kill. What looked like the defeat was absolutely what ushered in our victory. Victory over death, the grave, and hell. Let's stand together. What is our next step to rightly respond to the person and the work, the passion of Jesus Christ? Father, thank you. Thank you for your word and thank you for Jesus. Thank you that Jesus, you save sinners. Thank you that you do not wait for us to clean things up and come to you and present our best. We have nothing good to offer you. You are our God and our Savior. And so, Father, I thank you and I praise you for sending Jesus so that sinners could be forgiven and adopted into your family. Use your word, Lord, by your spirit and draw us to repentance and faith. Father, I pray that we who are under the sound of this message today, that we will respond rightly to your word in a way that is pleasing to you and is helpful to all who are around us. We love and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.